John chapter 7, verse 53 through chapter 8, verse 11. This is our passage for this morning. But starting at verse 53 is sort of like walking into a room where a conflict is occurring and you don't know why the conflict is occurring. To really get a sense of things, we have to pull back and get the context in front of us. And the important moment, the important context starts about 16 verses before this. It starts in John chapter 7 verse 37. In John chapter 7 verse 37 we read... On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So this is the important context. Jesus has come to the capital city of Israel. He's in Jerusalem during a national holiday, a festival called the Feast of Tabernacles. It's got several other names too. And at the climactic moment of this seven day long festival, Jesus stands up and he makes a claim. A claim that is suspiciously close to what God has said about himself in a very famous passage from Israel's sacred text. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 to 3. So here is Jesus, and he's he's taking the language that God uses to describe himself, God, and he's applying it to himself, Jesus. Now just imagine Ramadan in Saudi Arabia, in Mecca. During the climactic moment, the night of power, someone standing up in Mecca and somehow addressing millions of Muslim pilgrims who have come there and he takes language from the Quran where Allah is describing himself and this individual standing up in Mecca says to all of the Muslim pilgrims, that is me. Can you imagine a person claiming to be Allah in the flesh, in Mecca, on the night of power? That is what Jesus did. Now, to put it in a rather understated way, this caused a stir. So back to John chapter 7. There are two instantaneous reactions to Jesus' claim. First, we're told in John chapter 7 verses 40 to 43 that the crowd, their reaction is they are confused and divided. That's the first reaction, the reaction of the crowd. They're confused and they start arguing with each other. Some say, oh, it must be true. And some say, well, how can that be true? Then we're told of a second group of people 
how they respond, we're told that the chief priests and the special interest groups, the imams at Ramadan, we're told that the religious experts, they are not confused. They are not divided. They are angry. They are upset. They are so angry that they immediately work for Jesus to be arrested. Now that's very logical. You can imagine that exact thing happening in any religious context, giving this logic, giving this dynamic playing out. So these officers that are sent to arrest Jesus, again, it makes total sense. They're unable to carry out the orders to arrest Jesus because of his popularity and the massive crowds that have such a kind of religious holiday fervor that are around him at that moment. Then we get to verse 53. It's night. Everybody goes home. Round one is over. But during the night, the imams, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the chief priests, they come up with their strategy for round two. Round one was sending the, the police to arrest him, but this is a religious holiday, massive, excitable crowd, can't pull that off without creating a bigger problem that we want right now. So they come up with strategy for round two. And what is it? Well, <laughs> the issues are clear. This hillbilly upstart from the backwoods of Jerusalem has just walked into the capital city, walked up to the temple, and right there on the turf of the religious leaders, he has claimed to be God. They've got to respond. Their first attempt fails. So they decide that instead of a power move that's so kind of confrontational, they're going to, instead of arresting him, discredit him. They're going to get him to discredit himself by trapping him. And if they can get him to discredit himself, then the crowds will no longer think he's God, and then they can arrest him and do with him as they please. So overnight, they catch a woman in the act of adultery. Now, how they could so quickly find such a woman in the act is not a blank. It's a gap. A blank in literature is something you don't know that is not pertinent to the actual narrative. A gap is when there's something in the literature that you're not told about, but you're supposed to think about because it matters to the actual narrative. This is a gap. Which one of them knew of this situation and how did he know? Was he involved? They catch this woman. And they hold her until the morning. And then the next morning, they get lucky. Jesus has the stupidity, or could it be the courage, to go back to the Temple Mount? He knew they tried to arrest him yesterday. Why is he coming back? 
When he does, the crowd quickly gathers and he sits down like a rabbi to teach. That's what rabbis did in that culture. The position of authority for teaching in that culture was sitting down. In our culture, it's the opposite right now. As Christians, we believe that I'm a pastor preaching with authority. That doesn't mean I'm infallible. But this postures, this plays out all over America in lecture rooms, at universities, in boardrooms. This is, this is our culture's way of receiving teaching and of vesting someone with authority. Theirs was the exact opposite. Okay? You stood, rabbi said. Jesus sits down, he begins to teach, and suddenly, can you see it? There's a commotion as a group of men burst in, dragging this woman, perhaps half naked. And they say to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded to stone such a woman. What do you say? Can you, can you see this scene? All these people. This woman. These men with their angry, aggressive postures. Jesus, sitting down in the middle of teaching. Now, when they say, in the law, Moses commanded... They're saying, those scriptures you quoted yesterday and you claim to be the divine author of and the one that they point to, you took all of them on yourself. Those scriptures that you claim, they say to stone this woman. Do you see the proverbial horns of a dilemma? What is Jesus going to do? On the one hand, if he says that this woman should be forgiven, because that's what he's been talking about all through John's gospel, is compassion and kindness and forgiveness. If he, if he stays true to his message, then he's going against the very scriptures that he's claiming. But on the other hand, if he says the law should be followed and this woman should be stoned, how does that square with all of his talk of compassion and forgiveness. So he either contradicts one part of himself, his message of kindness and compassion and forgiveness, or he contradicts the law, which he's been claiming, which is the thing pointing to the Messiah. So he either contradicts himself one way, or he contradicts himself the other way. Either way, he's discredited. Can you see the religious leaders? So pleased with themselves. Using this woman, however guilty she may be of adultery, that's not their issue. She's just a tool in their attack on Jesus. Can you see them standing there? Have you ever been in that place where someone moved against you with such arrogant aggression? Such moral superiority. Have you ever seen somebody look at you with that look in their eyes? Their smugness, their delight in themselves. Now look at Jesus. He's silent. He bends down. He starts writing in the sand. What's he writing? Oh, we can only guess. We don't know. The Pharisees. Do you know what they're doing while he's writing? 
they keep asking him the same question over and over. Do you see that? This is aggression. Stoner or not? Come on, Jesus, what are you waiting on? Give an answer. Have you ever been mocked when you were trying to gather your thoughts? That's what, have you ever, has anybody ever come at you so repeatedly, over and over and over, that's what's happening? Now, what about this poor woman? When you look at her in your imagination, can you see the fear and the panic? Can you imagine a woman caught in adultery brought before a religiously hyped up crowd in the Middle East where the law clearly says stone her? This woman has to be terrified. She knows that she is a moment away from being bludgeoned to death by rocks. The fear caught in the act I wonder, were her husband and children in the crowd? Did they know? Can you sense not only fear, but the shame and the guilt? And there's Jesus. He loves this woman who is in a state of primal fear. He loves her. And he also loves these men who are in a state of primal rage. And he wants to save both of them. He wants to save this woman from all of the shame and the imminent death, but he also wants to save these men who are imprisoned in their own fears. Over and over, we've seen in John's gospel that what Jesus wants more than anything for all of us, for all of us, what he wants more than anything, including this woman, including her accusers, is that we will all open our hearts to his healing love and his friendship. He wants all of us to feel that we have value, that we are worthy of being loved. He wants this woman and these men both to know that they can do beautiful things. He wants you to know that. And in this moment, pregnant as it is, with terror and arrogance and fear and shame, Jesus stands up and says... Okay, let's do it. Let's fulfill the law. And the law tells us that in this situation, the innocent eyewitness has to be the first to throw the stone. That's all packed in his response to them. They know that's what he means. 
They know that Deuteronomy says that in this situation, there has to be two or three innocent eyewitnesses, and they have to throw the first stone. What does it mean that they can't do it? It's a gap, not a blank. It means these are hypocrites. It means the, these accusers are guilty of this very sin. It does not mean let the perfect person throw the first stone because that would, that would X out the entire judicial system. It means we need eyewitnesses here who are innocent of this If we're going to get serious about applying the law to this woman, not only do these witnesses have to be innocent, they have to start the execution. And suddenly and dramatically, the entire scene changes. Jesus' opponents are now on trial. The trial is shifted from the woman to Jesus to the opponents. Three trials. They've got to make a decision. And from the oldest to the youngest, they withdraw humiliated. And as their humility is playing out, Jesus saves face for them by doing the same thing he did for the woman, for the accusers. He distracts By bending down and riding in the dust again. Because he loves them as he loves the woman. Can you see him? Grace in the flesh. Compassion in the flesh. He chooses not to watch the public humiliation of his opponents. He does no crowing. He refrains from twisting the knife. He takes no pleasure in humiliating them. He simply wants to save the woman and the accusers. And when they've all gone, and he's alone with this woman for the first time, he looks at her. For the first time, he directs the energy and attention of the situation to her. Up until now, he's drawn it away. Now that she's alone with him, he turns to this pitiful creature who has got all the adrenaline of about to be killed rushing through her body. And he addresses her with the same endearing word that the last time he used, it was with his mother. He says, woman, woman. Which in our culture, this is tricky tricky because to say woman, often it's hard to even read that without kind of an aggressive, cynical tone. But in that culture, it was quite... The opposite. 
uses for her the same label that he used for the Virgin Mary. Woman, where are they? Has anyone condemned you? No one, she says. Neither do I. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go and sin no more. He doesn't condemn her. But does he condone her behavior? No. He clearly sees adultery is wrong. He dares to accuse her of sin in that moment. He has the grace to accuse her of sin in that moment. Forgiveness is not the same thing as tolerance. In fact, it's the opposite of tolerance. No, what Jesus wants is to liberate not only these men from their hypocrisy, but he wants to, del- to liberate this woman from her sexual sin. He wants the men and the woman to change their ways. To discover their real value as human beings, as children of God. He doesn't want her to grovel in guilt, but he needs her to own her guilt. To admit that she has done a terrible wrong. Adultery destroys families. One of my favorite definitions of the Ten Commandments is ten rules for happy neighborhoods. All of those ten commandments destroy community. They're not restrictions, they're liberations. The Ten Commandments give us the liberty of community and friendship and happiness. And violating any one of them destroys community. He wants this woman to discover that she is forgiven. But the only way to discover forgiveness is to own guilt. And once she does that, she can go free knowing that she is loved. That she can become a true human that loves God and loves her husband and loves her children and loves herself. He doesn't condemn her, but he clearly does not condone her behavior. She has been rescued, literally rescued from death. And now she has to live out of the forgiveness that rescued her from death. Being forgiven does not mean sin doesn't matter. It means that sin actually does matter. But God chooses to set it aside. Now let's, with this vision of reality, let's look at our world today. What do we see 
when we stop looking at this passage and we look out at our world through the lens of this passage. Let's see four lessons for our lives today. In this passage, we see that today, as then, the essence of salvation is substitution. The essence of salvation is not effort and earning. It's the grace of substitution. The chapter starts with a woman guilty of adultery facing death by stoning. They drop the stones in verse 9, but if you have a Bible, jump to the end of the chapter and look at verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at Jesus. The stones they dropped for the woman. He steps in front of her. And they pick them up. Because anger is almost always the second emotion. Their humiliation. Didn't turn into repentance. It turned into anger. Jesus saved this woman from death. At the cost of his own life. And remember, she was guilty. And he was not. He drew her deserved death onto himself. He never romanticized her behavior. He never said she didn't deserve. Punishment. And yet, this woman who broke her vows and betrayed her family, that sin, in all of its ugliness, in no way diminished Jesus' willingness to protect her at the cost of his own life. His commitment to love her at the cost of drawing all of that anger and wrath onto himself. That is a picture of what John is trying to show us is about to happen in a few chapters at the end of his gospel. He's trying to teach us here what the cross is. The cross is a substitution. It happened, by the way, back in chapter 4. The leper, I mean the paraplegic at the pool of Salome that we saw a few weeks ago, Jesus heals him. He picks up his mat on the Sabbath. The, the Pharisees get mad at him. He says, Jesus did it. All their anger turns to Jesus. Over and over, John is giving us stories with the deep logic of substitution. 
as a way of preparing us to see that at its heart, the essence of salvation is gracious substitution. We are all this woman. In the Bible, adultery is the symbol for all sin. We are all this woman. We are all adulterers in the sense that we have all betrayed vows, chosen ourselves, given the finger to our Creator, turned our back on the grain of the universe. We have all, we are all covered in our guilt. Who among us? did not have sin to confess a few moments ago. I am this woman. You are this woman. And on the cross, Jesus drew all of the evil wrath of history onto himself. In your place. That was our passage from Isaiah. By his wounds. We are saved. That's exactly what happened to this woman. Jesus took. The stones didn't just stay inert. They were going to be thrown. And he drew them all to himself. That's what Jesus has done for Rose. For every one of us, for Ed, for me, for Janelle. He has stepped in front of what you and I, we deserve on the cross. He took on himself our fate. He died, the innocent one, for the guilty. And in this way, Christianity is unique from all the religions of the world. Every other religion offers some version of salvation through human effort. But Chris, this, this picture, in this moment, what we've got to see is that this is the picture of Christian salvation. What did the woman do to make up for her adultery? Nothing. All she did was hide behind a substitute. That's all. That is the essence of the Christian revelation of how the Creator saves us. Not through us deserving it, not through us bringing to Him all the very good things we've done because all of us are mixtures of shadow and light. We've all got plenty of good things we've done. We've all done tremendously sacrificial, selfless things, kind things, good things. We've all made amazing choices for generosity. But none of that in that moment is offered up. Instead, a substitute is accepted. And that basic difference is the logic of salvation in Christianity. Christianity reveals to us a salvation that is because of grace. The creator takes all of the wrath into himself. 
There's more. A second lesson we see here is that salvation is not only about the grace of substitution, it's also about the grace of an intimate love relationship that you and I can have with the God, the creator God, who is personal. The second lesson is that salvation is about an intimate friendship with God through Jesus. Over and over in John's gospel, we see that Jesus invites you and me into an actual friendship, a relationship of love. Christianity, again, here is unique. This is a unique thing. In Christianity, God invites you and me into a direct, one-on-one, personal relationship of intimate love. A real friendship. But he never imposes it. He only offers it. Love is an invitation, not an imposition. He doesn't violate our freedom. He invites us to trust him. He invites each one of us, from the youngest of us to the oldest of us, from the most guilty to the most pure. He invites every one of us into a personal, intimate friendship with himself. Have you done this? If not, why? Why do people refuse such? Well, that's not an easy question to answer. It's not a one-size-fits-all issue. For some people, it's just that they can't believe that God really exists. So it's a fairy tale invitation. 500 years ago, You had to swim against the plausibility structure of society in order not to believe. Very rare did people not believe. Even the most sophisticated and wanton disregarders of God's way, they still believed. But our society has changed. And it is very, very difficult to believe in this view of a God existing at all. For some of us, it's that. For others of us, maybe you've only ever known of a love that is possessive and you cannot bring yourself to believe that there is such a thing as a liberating love. Or maybe you don't want to be liberated. Maybe you're afraid of losing something, some wealth or pleasure or power. You're afraid to admit that you're a mess. Each one of us has our own struggles, our own obstacles to allowing the healing love of Jesus to penetrate the darkness of our hearts and to set us free. Becoming a Christian, though, requires you overcome that obstacle. You have to. You have to recognize your need. 
is for a true love relationship with your creator. And only when you turn to him and trust, only when you, like this woman, hide behind him and believe that he substitutes his innocent life for your guilty life, only when you believe that he's doing this out of compassion and love, only by doing that and you turn your life to him and trust, only in doing that can you be saved. Saved from what? From your shame, from your guilt, from your bad habits, from all of the anti-life forces that are ravaging your life. Have you done this? If not, please, please do. I mean, and, and, and talk with somebody about it. Find somebody who does, has done this, and talk with them. My email's on the back. My phone number's on the back of the worship guide. Call me if you want to talk about this. A third lesson here for us. A third lesson here is about civility. When I look out at our world today, our society today, through the vision of life that this passage gives us, I think there's a massive Lesson here regarding civility. This woman is the destroyer of family and community. And yet Jesus is kind and compassionate with this woman. The religious leaders who would use such a woman as a tool. Their hypocrisy and arrogance is disgusting And Jesus is kind and compassionate with them. When Jesus hangs on the cross, what does he pray for his murderous, hypocritical accusers? God, forgive them. Let us learn from Jesus how to treat our political adversaries. Let the Democrats in the room learn how to treat the Trump supporters. And let the Trump supporters learn how to treat the Democrats. From this vision of reality. And what does this vision of reality teach us about this moment Do not retaliate. Forgive. Do not twist the knife in. Here in America, the the pattern is that those who have power always find a way To exclude and silence opposition. Unpopular critique. We have a cultural heritage in which those who have power treat their opponents not simply as mistaken, but as despicable. Why can't Fox News attack the issues and not the person? And why can't the Democratic Party attack the issues and not the person? 
Why, why can't we have the guts to name character weakness, but not in a kind of vitriolic fashion? The reason why is because there has never been a truly pluralistic society. There's never been one. One in which every viewpoint has the right to be heard without marginalization and defamation. But Christians who have been hoveling on the ground and have been saved by grace, surely we can work with even our enemies to create a truly pluralistic society. A society in which people of different beliefs are free to express their views and practice what they believe. We need a truly, a true pluralism in our school systems, in our marketplace. Let us follow Jesus in refusing to ridicule and taunt our opponents. Finally, a fourth lesson. Our sexual behavior matters to God and to the gospel. Like we saw earlier, forgiveness is not the same thing as tolerance. In Scripture, God shows us the only context for sex is marriage between one man and one woman, and all sex outside of a heterosexual marriage is damaging. Premarital sex is damaging. Adulterous sex is damaging. Homosexual sex is damaging. It cuts against the grain of the universe, which was put into the universe By the creator, it is bad for us. All sexual behavior outside of a heterosexual marriage is bad. It's bad for us. Now, our society is programming us at this moment to think that our our sexuality is core to our identity. That when, when you say to someone that their way of expressing sexuality is bad for them, that, that if you in any way stop, unless it's child abuse, which, which is the last remaining sexual ethic in our culture, the logic of our society is that in that moment... You're striking at someone's core identity. And behind that is the idea that if you're not having sex, you're not a full person. But as Christians, we say the truest human who ever lived never had sex. As Christians, we have to expose the deep logic behind the sexuality debate. And at the heart of the sexuality debate is an idolatrous distortion. Our society is saying to us that unless we're having sex, we're not truly fulfilled. So what does that say about William Veerman? Can he never be a whole person? 
This is a terrible lie. This will destroy every single one of us. Married or not, your sexual identity is not your identity. And we are all sexually disoriented. At the heart of the Bible is that sex is one of God's gifts that some people get to experience for some part of their life. And that if we don't resist the argument that you've got to have it to be fully human, we are all doomed. Every single one of us. The vast, the, more than half of this room, according to Scripture, cannot have legitimate sex. And guess what? Scripture in no way envisions that as a weakness. You see, Scripture understands sexual self-control as liberation. You can be free from innate desires. A human is not an animal. A human can discipline desires. And the health of the human and society depends on that. And we've got to have the guts to say this. Now, notice in this passage, Christianity is a subversive fulfillment of all of the dreams of our society. On the one hand, it says to this woman that our society is deeply attuned to her shame. It says, yes, she can be free from that. But the way she's free from that is by us coming to grips with the way that we are idolatrously trying to satisfy our desires. Yes, your desires can be fulfilled. Repent of the ways you've been trying to fulfill them. It's a subversive fulfillment. Jesus was both willing to stand against the idolatry of his culture while still affirming the deep desires of his culture. And the church today has to get that right. We have to know the parts of our culture that are right in line with God and his kingdom. The the deep attunement to shame. But we also have to have the willingness to choose a path that appears to be narrow and exclusivistic. Whether the culture can understand it or not. Jesus shows us the way to do that. It takes courage. And it takes a relationship with the creator. The path to freedom is accepting Christ as your substitute. The path to a healthy society is civility and sexual discipline. These are the ways this passage leads us into our world. And it also shows us that the church is the body of Christ. And if we move out like that, we will be attacked for it. And it might even result in the loss of a reputation. And I suspect there's coming a day where these views will result in the loss of jobs. 
they will result in the loss of money. And we follow Christ into that suffering because we trust that he will raise us from that into true life. Look on the front of your worship guide. That is you. That is the Lord Christ standing in front of you. What a great passage to lead us into Lent. You see, this is the Lenten journey. The Lenten journey... is to take our sins seriously. So seriously that they drive us to our knees in shame. And to look up and to see that the answer is not some romantic humanism that says, no, that's not true. But to see that the answer to our shame is a gracious substitute. Christ himself. This is the journey of Lent. This is what you've got to make time for over the next few weeks. You need to set aside time where you're reading the scriptures and praying, where you're taking your guilt seriously. And you need to look up and see Christ who draws all the wrath on himself. And he dies for you. Because he loves you. And that is the answer to your shame. Not glossing over the sin. But owning the sin and letting Jesus pay the price for it. And then hearing him look at you. A cross shattered Christ. Look at you. And look at me. And say... Now out of your thankfulness, go and sin no more. Out of your gratitude, stop death ways. And step into the liberation of knowing that your central identity is not your gender, your race, your sexual orientation, your central identity is beloved. Loved. Loved because you're beautiful. And you can do beautiful things. Let's pray.